Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySelfland.com. Last week we started uh, working through the book of Romans, and so we're in this series on Romans, then of course we're going to take a little break after this because next week is church renewal, and, uh, and then after that we have some special guests coming down. Ron Pierce is going to be here in uh, two weeks, which is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. So he's going to be obviously sharing some amazing stories and stuff from around the world. And then after that, Alex Mitala is coming, but I'll, we'll just keep working through. We'll take breaks and we'll just keep working through. And we're going to work through Romans. And today we're going to go through the second half of Romans chapter 1. We got through the first half last week. And we're going to also get into chapter 2. So let's pray and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for using us. Thank you that we get to be a part of a church family where we can, where we can really make a big difference together. And uh, we pray a blessing on every single family and person that took a hamper this week, that took a bag of clothes. Lord Jesus, we pray that your love would infuse their heart, that something uh, from what they took here would also go into their hearts spiritually and cause them to want to seek after you and to know you more. I pray that hundreds of those who receive Bibles are going to open them up this week and look into them, and that many will receive you as a result. And Lord, as we look at Romans again today, what a brilliant letter your Holy Spirit inspired. I pray that you would touch our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're, we're working our way through here. What I want to do is, I just want to give you a, a little overview of, uh, of a section of Romans that we're, we're going through right now, which is chapter 1, verse 18, until the end of chapter 3. And Darlene, if you could just throw that up there. Um, we're not going to get through this whole section uh, today. But uh, this is what we're going to be working through over the next couple of messages. Uh, over the next couple of messages, we will be working through, ta-da! <laughs> Never mind, okay. Um, basically, Romans 1, verse 18 to 3, verse 20 is all about, there it is. Um, I knew I made one this morning. And uh, Romans 1, 18 to 3, verse 20, I just want to give you some broad strokes. Because as we're going through Romans, one of the things I said last week is a lot of people intimidated by the book of Romans. A lot of people think the book of Romans is, is super complicated. It's just for seminary students. And I want you all to know as we go through this series, and by the time we come out of this series, I want everybody here to feel like they, first of all, love the book of Romans, but also more than that, obviously, that it would touch our hearts, that the truths in there would really touch our hearts, and it would make sense to us, okay? And so sometimes what happens with the book of Romans is that as us preachers preach our way through it, you get so caught up on the details, on the little trees, that you lose kind of the scope of the overall argument. And that's why I don't want to take 10 years going through the book of Romans, because if we take that long to get through it, at the end, we're just going to be left with nothing. Okay? So I want to give you some really broad strokes. Okay? And so over the next couple of messages, we're going to work through this section. We won't get through it all today, but we will get through that first chunk there, number one. But from 1 verse 18, and you might want to mark this even in your Bibles or whatever in your journals, however you want to do it. But, the, but 1 verse 18 to the end of, uh, or to chapter 3 verse 20 is all about the problem of sin. And basically the way it breaks down, and this is slightly oversimplified, but if you just keep this in mind, it's going to make sense as you're reading the book of Romans for the rest of your life, hopefully, okay? So number one, uh, Paul's point in this section is that the Gentiles, and for those of you who don't know what a Gentile is, a Gentile is anybody that's not a Jew, okay? So the vast majority of us here today are Gentiles. And so Paul's point in the first part of this section, this section 118 to 320 is all about the problem of sin. His first point in that section, which is the second half of chapter 1, 
1 verse 18 to the end of chapter 1, you can mark it in your Bibles if you want, is his point is that the Gentiles are all messed up. Basically, the human race is messed up. Okay? And then in chapter 2, he takes all of chapter 2 to basically explain the Jews are also messed up. Okay? And then in the first 20 verses of chapter 3, he just goes, we're all messed up. All right? And then in the last half of chapter 3, we get the solution. All right? Now, you say, okay, so there, that's pretty easy, okay? We're all messed up. That's pretty easy. Some of you are wondering, why does it take him so long to say that, right? Some of you are like robots, and you need to get some emotion in your hearts already and stuff. But some of you are like, why doesn't the Bible just say, we are all messed up? Jesus came and saved us, okay? The end. The Bible's all on one page, okay? And part of the reason is, for the first part of the reason is because actually Paul wants to connect with our hearts. He wants to develop this a bit, and that takes more than a sentence, Okay? Uh, second thing that's going on here, though, is you're, you're thinking, why does he have to say Gentiles are messed up and Jews are messed up? I mean, obviously, we're all messed up. Why does he have to break it up into different pieces? And, and we, we're not going to look much at chapter 2 yet today. We'll look at that in the next message. You're going to see more. But part of the thing you have to realize is that in the early church, when Paul was writing this letter, we've kind of lost this in our culture today because we're just, and it, it's not because we're bad, but we North Americans, and probably every human being, it's probably not just our culture, but I can only speak for us, uh, we North Americans, we just tend to be kind of uh, self-centered, and it's probably, like I said, it's probably true of every culture to some extent, but we North Americans tend to think that when it comes down to it, basically everything's about us, and so when we read the Bible, we read it nowadays as if it's all about us, that somehow the Bible revolves around us, and that's a big part of the reason why a lot of this doesn't make sense to us, because the Bible was written by Jews and to Jews for the most part. Now, thankfully, God has saved us now as Gentiles, and we get included a bit in the story, and it all applies to us. But this, isn't, this book is Israel-centric. And Joel Richardson talked about that a month ago when he was here, which I just absolutely loved. Uh, but this book is Israel-centric, okay? And in the early church, this is going to help you make sense of a whole lot of the book of Romans. As we're going through it, I'm explaining it to you now, but as you go through the book of Romans, I'm going to come back to this point again and again and again. In the early church... The question of the Jewish people was a huge question. Like most North American Christians today never think about Jews, hardly ever. And I hope that's not true here in this church, but it certainly is true in much of our culture. We just hardly ever think about the Jewish people, okay? And so again, that's why the Bible, a lot of it doesn't make sense to us. Why would Paul be making this argument? Well, in the early church, the question of the Jewish people was a huge question because all of the earliest Christians were Jews, Okay, every single one of them. We, don't, we, often, we often forget our roots, the Jewish roots of Christianity, which is Jesus came, his disciples were all Jews, Jesus is a Jew, Jesus went back to heaven and the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost and a whole bunch of Jews got saved. And in fact, when you read through the book of Acts, the first nine chapters, which is where most of the people are getting saved, it's in the first nine chapters where we read, you know, 3,000 people got saved that day and 2,000 people got saved that day and multitudes came to Christ that day. That's all happening in the first nine chapters of the book of Acts. And all of those people getting saved in the first nine chapters were all of them, every single one, Jews. The first non-Jew, the first Gentile to get saved in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 10, and God has to, because the, the, the disciples didn't even know Gentiles could get saved. I mean, that's just obvious to us now, thank you, Lord, we can get saved. But in the first nine chapters of Acts, they didn't even know Gentiles could get saved. And so, you know, God has to actually give the apostle Peter a vision, and he has to repeat it a couple of times, 
And then he says, now go with these men that come. And he goes to Cornelius' house. And that's a famous story. And Cornelius becomes the first Gentile who gets saved. All right? But the early church was, was, the earliest church was all Jewish, okay? And so those early Christians, when they first got saved, what you have to realize is, again, we think of ourselves now, there's Christianity, there's Judaism, right? So we have two separate religions. But you have to realize that in the early days of the, of, of the church, those earliest Christians, the disciples, did not consider themselves to be starting a new religion. They didn't wake up. Jesus went to heaven, and they got up the next day and said, starting a new religion, it's called Christianity. That's not what they thought. They didn't think of them as start, themselves as starting a new religion because the whole Old Testament prophesied about a Messiah. They didn't see themselves as starting a new religion. They viewed Christianity as the fulfillment and continuation of the Judaism that they had always grown up with. Okay, so they didn't wake up and think, we're, we're converting people to a new religion. They considered themselves to be living out the continuation and the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. So we still have the same uh, Old Testament. Our Old Testament today, 2,000 years later, is still identical to the Hebrew Scriptures, the Jewish Scriptures. The Bible didn't end when Christianity started. They kept the Scriptures. Now, of course, we have the New Testament, obviously, which is added on. Okay, but it was, so, okay, so that was a big deal. So they didn't view themselves as this whole thing is changing and we're starting a new religion, okay? So, and again, so I'm helping you make sense of, this is going to help you a lot going on into Romans in the, in the coming months. Um, because, of course, after a certain point, this became a bit of a problem. And the reason it became a bit of a problem was now you have Jews who are not believing and you have Jews that are believing and everywhere where these Christians are, are starting new churches, you've got Jews who are converting and you've got Jews who are turning against it. And so now you have this question starts to come up. Okay, what does it mean to be a Jew? What does it mean to be a Christian? Kind of what's the difference? And, and, and in that earliest church, in, when they were starting these churches, because the church was coming out of Jewish people and it was Jewish people accepting Jesus and Jewish people rejecting Jesus at the same time, the whole question of, of, of Jewishness just, just consumed the church and which laws do we have to keep and, and which things are expected of us because they weren't throwing out the Old Testament scriptures, all right? And of course, this problem was also exasperated by the fact that when Paul and the other believers would go and spread the message even to Gentiles, they would first target the Jewish community. Look at this in Romans 1.16. We, we passed over this uh, verse last week. But in Romans 1.16, Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So a lot of Christians look at this verse, and some Christians nowadays just get mad at it because they almost feel like God loves Jews more than us or some kind of weird thing like that. And they don't know, what does that mean, the gospel is to the Jew first? Well, it means a few things, okay? And I'm going to look at very briefly now at four. Uh, I'm not going to talk much about the last two, but the, the first two for sure. Um, but what does it mean when Paul says the gospel is to the Jew first? Well, a few things here. First of all, Paul is talking here about a strategic, practical reality. Okay, that whenever Paul would go to a new uh, a Gentile city, when he would go there, he would first spread the gospel in that city to the Jewish population. And this is something that most of us Christians now, 2,000 years later, don't think about because, again, we've kind of made Christianity into a Gentile thing. We've forgotten our Jewish roots. 
And so most of us, we think of Paul as the missionary to the Gentiles, which he most certainly was, but we don't realize, as you read through the book of Acts, and you will find this over and over and over and over again, Paul had a pattern. Everywhere he went to the Gentile cities, before he would go to the Gentiles, he would first find out where the Jewish population was, and he would first spread the gospel to them. I'll just show you one example here. Acts chapter uh, 17, Thessalonica. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. So this was his custom. And again, you'll find this at least a dozen times in the book of Acts. But this was his custom. This is what he did. He would come to a new city to spread the gospel. Before he'd go to the Gentiles, he'd first find the Jewish population. And I'll tell you why in just, just a moment. But anyway, and Paul went in, as was his custom. On three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Okay? So this was Paul's pattern. And usually what would happen then is he'd go to the Jews first. He'd get a few converts. And then a bunch of other Jews would reject what he was saying. They would drive Paul and the new converts out and begin to persecute them. And then Paul would go to the Gentiles in that community. Now you say, well, why would he do that? Well, again, I'm going to show you four reasons very briefly. I don't want to spend lots of time here, but I'll just show you. The, the first one is it was strategic. Paul was being strategic. It was just practical reasons. Okay? And you say, well, what, why, would, why would that be strategic to go to the Jews first? Why would that be a practical consideration to go to the Jews first? Here's what you have to realize. When you think of those pagan cities in the Roman Empire, those pagan cities were made up, some of them bigger, some of them smaller, but they were made up of populations. A whole bunch of people in that city would, would be uh, outright pagan idolaters, worshiping all kinds of obscene, gross idols. Okay? You'd have another group of people in those cities who were more like the Greek philosophers, they would be more like what we today would call atheists or agnostics, okay? And then you would have a Jewish population in that city, and the Jewish population already believed in the scriptures. They already believed in the right God, and they were already looking for the Messiah. So if you think about three groups of people in a city, one is worshiping pagan, immoral, uh, really, in many cases, obscene idols and gods and strange things. Another group is kind of atheist, agnostic. And then another group already believes the scriptures and is looking for a Messiah and believes in the right God. Which group is most ripe for the picking? You want to go there first because, what, if you, when you, because out of them, immediately you're going to find some good-hearted people. And when you show them what the scripture says and you tell them about Jesus, they're going to accept immediately because they're ready for it. And you won't have to do much work with them. They already have a foundation. Their whole lives have been spent steeped in the scriptures. They already believe in Yahweh. So when you convert them, you don't have to do much with them. They can already begin to turn around and disciple others for just practical reasons. It was, uh, it was in that, those times a great group of people to start with whenever you want to spread the gospel. So part of the reason Paul said it's to the Jew first and part of the reason it was his custom to go to the Jews first was because in his day and age, that was the most strategic way to do it. And then after that, you go to the little bit more difficult soil. And by the way, if I may just say this as well, a lot of people, part of what I'm trying to do in this series too is I want us to have a, a more uh, uh, truthful, accurate picture of what's happening in the New Testament in the early church. A lot of us have this concept of, of, you know, in the early church, it was just revival everywhere, thousands of people getting saved. Everywhere they preached the gospel, people were flocking to the church, and, and on and on. And the reason we have that picture is because of the first eight or nine chapters of the book of Acts. 
It's in the first part of Acts where we see Christianity explode to thousands upon thousands instantly. And, but as soon as it goes to the Gentile cities, and that's in the Jewish part, as soon as it goes out into the Gentile cities, the spread of the gospel slows down. It becomes harder work. You say, why is that? I'll tell you why. Because again, the Jewish people in Israel were already looking for a Messiah. So when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, a whole bunch of them with good hearts had already been waiting for this, and thousands of them, at the moment the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, thousands of them came rushing into the kingdom immediately. But the moment they went out into the Gentile cities, I'm not saying there was never a moment where in Gentile cities masses of people got saved at once, but the book of Acts never tells us that once after Acts chapter 8. It's only in the Jewish parts, it's only in Israel where we get thousands at once because it's only there that people were ready en masse to hear it. Once against the Gentile cities, it slows down. You say, why do you tell us that? Because it's actually a lot of, I think sometimes we get this expectation of, and I think young people especially, we want revival to be something magic. We would just love to not have to do much work or suffer or pray and just suddenly have dream of the day and, and uh, you know, charismatics in particular, you know, we like to dream this way. We're just dreaming the day when the Lord is just bringing them in by the thousands and they're just pouring into our church and we just basically don't have to do anything to bring people to Christ. And in reality, the model right from the early church and the New Testament on is it was hard work. You prayed a lot. You witnessed to your friends. You won them over. You had discussions. It took years sometimes. And you won people over. And slowly you built a group and you built a church. And it would begin to spread as more and more people's lives were changed. And so I think it's important for us to just have that in our minds. And so one of the reasons Paul says the gospel is the Jew first is because that was strategic and practical for him as he spread the gospel. Now, that's not the only reason Paul says the gospel is to the Jew first. Second reason is that's just the historical reality. Okay, that's just the historical reality is the gospel did come to the Jews first. God made a covenant with Abraham. He says, he said, I'm going to bring, I'm going to bless the nations through you. Okay, and then he gave to Abraham's descendants, the Jewish people, he gave them the scriptures, he gave them the promises, and when Jesus was born, he was born to the Jewish people. So it was the Jewish people who got to touch him first. It was the Jewish people who got to be ministered to by Jesus, during his lifetime here on earth, he didn't minister to Gentiles for the, va- for, for the most part. He ministered in Israel to Jews. And so at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell, the first people who got to experience the Holy Spirit and be saved were Jews. So it's just a historical reality. They were first in line. The, the gospel is to the Jew first. That's just true in terms of history. So it's, term, it's true in terms of strategy. When Paul would go to these cities in his day and age, it just made sense to go to the Jews first. It's true in terms of history that the gospel came to the Jewish people first before the rest of us got a crack on it. Now there's also a third thing. And the third thing is that this also has to do with God's divine order, that the nations get blessed through the Jews and we are supposed to return a blessing to them. When God made his covenant with Abraham, I've talked about this in messages in the past, but I want to keep reminding us of this. Genesis chapter 26, and I can show you almost, uh, I think, four or five places at least in the book of Genesis, but in Genesis 26, God says this to Abraham, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So it was never God's intention to just save the Jews. It was never his intention to only bless the Jews. But in his sovereignty, 
It was his determination that it's going to be through the Jews that I bring salvation and blessing to the whole world. Okay? And that's important for us to remember. So when Paul says that the gospel is to the Jew first, part of what he's also saying to us Gentiles is, is we better never forget about the Jewish people. That's part of what he's saying. He's saying, let's not erase the history. He's saying, we as Gentile Christians need to always hold, and I could show you other verses, which we will get to as we go through this series yet. I don't want to jump too far ahead into Romans because we're going to pass those verses anyway at some point. But he actually says this in the book of Romans in a couple different places, that we as Christians actually owe a debt of gratitude to the Jewish people. We actually owe them a debt of gratitude because through them came the scriptures, through them came the promises, through them came Jesus. And so we should always remember that when we think of the Jewish people, we as Christians should be the first people in line to love the Jewish people. First in line. Because we have a debt of gratitude to them. And so when he says to the Jew first, part of what he's also saying is never forget about the Jews. When we pray, we should keep them in our hearts. We should love them. When we have opportunity, which not every single local church will, but the greater church as a whole, whenever we have opportunity, we should also put the Jews in as a priority in terms of sharing the gospel and ministering to them. We should never forget about them. And if we do that, God actually promises a blessing to us. Genesis 12, verse 3, God said this to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, here it is again, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So part of what it means to the Jew first is that the Christian church as a whole owes a debt of gratitude to the Jewish people, and the Christian church as a whole must not forget that fact and must never forget to love the Jews and to pray for them and to desire for them to receive the gospel. That is a theme we will pick up again a couple of times throughout the book of Romans, but I've introduced it to you now. All right? So, as we're reading through the book of Romans, let's not forget that part of who Paul is talking to, this whole book is going to start to make a lot more sense when we actually bring the Jewish people back into the picture and remember that this book isn't written to North Americans. Okay? And so this Jewish question, there's going to be times in the book of Romans, we're going to see it especially in chapter 2, when Paul's actually going to flip. Sometimes he's talking to Christians, sometimes Gentile Christians, sometimes he's speaking to uh, Jewish Christians, sometimes he's speaking to Jewish religious objections. The whole book will make more sense as we work it through that way. But anyway, let's go back. I said I wanted to work through this section 1 verse 18 to 3 verse 20, and I want to work through now the second half of chapter 1, 1 verse 18 to 1 verse 32, and, and the title of that section, I've just called it, is the, is the Gentiles are messed up. The human race is messed up, all right? And uh, Paul wants to start his gospel sharing, and we talked about this last week, but I want to really grind it in, and Tom actually touched on it the week before too, which I loved. But I really want to grind it in is that before Paul talks about the love of Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus, when he's sharing the gospel here and writing this down in his letter, he first has to show us how desperately in need of a Savior we are. And this, and so in order to do that, you have to talk about wrath, you have to talk about God's righteousness, you have to talk about hell and things like that. And that's what's missing from so much Christian teaching and so much Christian culture today, we've taken out the bad news because we think it's all just about the good news. But what we don't realize is that, is that the good news doesn't even make sense unless you know the bad news in contrast. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't make any sense to tell people they need to be saved unless you also tell them what they need to be saved from. 
And so let's keep that in mind as we go through the first or the second half of Romans chapter 1 now. What you're going to see is Paul has not talked about the love of Jesus yet or the forgiveness of Jesus. He's first setting up the problem and he does that brilliantly. So verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, okay? And so the first thing here is why is God wrathful against humanity? It is because we are suppressing the truth. Suppressing the truth about what? Next verse. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Keep that in mind. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. What's Paul doing here? Well, there's a wrong picture that our culture has about people that often seeps into our Christian culture. And the picture that our culture wants to, wants to paint of us human beings is Human beings are basically good. Human beings are basically good. So you show people in our culture the news, and you say, well, if people are basically good, why is there so much news about bad? But what the people in our culture basically believe is that the reason human beings are bad is not because we're intrinsically bad, it's because we're ignorant. So if we can just, if we can just, educate people better, more education, more teaching, we can get rid of evil. If we can just spread education and eradicate poverty around the world, we will eradicate evil. Now, of course, it's not bad to educate people. It's not bad to try to eradicate poverty. Love, those are both worthy goals, and we as a church, Thanksgiving Food and Clothing Drive, right there, exhibit number A, we believe in helping those things. But the idea that you can educate people out of evil, that people are bad because they're ignorant, is utterly false. It's utterly false. I mean, I could show you many examples. I mean, uh, one example, we could just take uh, sex education. Um, it's not bad to educate our kids about sex. I think that primarily should be done in the home like it has been done for most of human history. But, but if people think, you know, we've got teen pregnancies, we've got STDs, we've got all this you know, garbage happening in the world. So the answer is we just have to educate kids. So we've educated kids more about sex now than ever before in the history of mankind, and all the problems are still there and getting worse. And we've gone to Africa, and we've gone to all kinds of countries there to try and stop the spread of AIDS by educating people more, and there's only one country in, in, in Africa where it's actually getting reversed, and that's in Uganda where they've, where they've emphasized abstinence, not education or I shouldn't say not education, but abstinence as a big part of that education. So education doesn't eradicate evil. Education is a good thing, but education is not the solution to the world's problems because the human race's most basic problem is not that we are ignorant, but that we are at heart wicked. It's that we are at heart wicked. The human race, see this idea that the human race is like a toddler, like a little two-year-old, who just doesn't know any better, and that's why we keep messing up, that's the wrong picture. The human race is not a toddler that is messing up because we're ignorant. The human race is messing up because we are in rebellion against God. And so Paul says, 
God, the first thing God is wrathful against is that we suppress the truth. We don't sin because we don't know the truth. We sin because we don't want to know the truth. We don't want to know it. And you say, well, what about people who've never heard about Jesus? How can you say they are suppressing the truth when they have never heard the truth? And Paul's answer is right there. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. Paul says, everybody in human race is without excuse. Well, how is he going to make that argument? Because lots of people have never encountered a Bible or heard about Jesus properly. So how can we, how can we be rebellious instead of ignorant? And Paul says it's because for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. You say, well, how is it plain to them? If they've never heard about Jesus, if they've never read a Bible, how is the truth about God plain to the peoples of this world? Well, verse 20 says this, for his Invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So Paul's point here is, is that you don't need to have the full revelation of Jesus. You don't need to have the full revelation of the Bible. You don't, have, you don't need to have uh, to become, you know, be evan- out, you know, overtly evangelized or come to church to be able to look around you and see that there must be a God. You don't have to have a missionary come and tell you explicitly about Jesus to be able to look around. We live in an incredible universe, and you don't even have to be a scientist to know that. Just look around and see the trees and see our bodies, our hands, what we can do. But I mean, now that we know more about what's out there, the fact that there are galaxies and, and the, you know, our solar system and how everything fits together perfectly, finely tuned for there to be life, we can look around us and we can see that there must be a God. And if we were, if we were not rebellious against God, we could respond to that little bit of revelation and we, can, we could at least seek and say there must be a God out there, the God who made all of this, and I would like to follow him and please him. And if you respond well to a little bit of revelation, he'll give you more. But Paul says it's actually plain to them, and it's true that it is plain. Any five-year-old, any five-year-old follows this reasoning. If, if, if a five-year-old child goes out in the backyard and there's a brand new shiny bike there with their name on it, they don't go, wow, this thing spontaneously popped out of nothing. <laughs> like, the bike, the chain, the gears, it just spontaneously popped out of nothing, all connected together, the bolts perfectly tightened. That's not what a five-year-old thinks. They think, someone put that bike there, someone made that bike, and someone put that bike there because they love me, and they want to go and ask mom and dad, is that for me? Can you teach me to ride it? Because we all know, impossible. No scientific experiment ever anywhere has ever shown that something even as not complex as a bike can pop into being out of nothing. It's not possible. Everyday experience tells us that. Yet the world that is all around us is a billion times more complex than a bike. 
I can take a microscope and look further and further and further closer to my hand, and when I get down to the cell, the cells of my skin and the cells in my blood, the complexity and the design there are unmistakable and awe-inspiring. I can just look at our human existence. I can look at how the earth rotates around the sun at the perfect distance and how do the laws of physics all come together like that and I can see if there's no way I could ever believe that this pulpit just one day, we didn't buy it, nobody built it, it just, there it was. Wow, cool. That would take tremendous faith. Tremendous faith. None of you would ever believe it. Yet we come up with immensely complicated scientific arguments to explain how something far more complex and beautiful and designed can pop out of nothing. Paul says it's actually plain to the entire human race that there is a God and many of his attributes, that he is good, that he is reasonable, that he is powerful, that he is beautiful, are all innate. We can see his attributes in nature. I want to show you a four-minute video, because it's just a good video. So I thought of it when I was doing it. I'm like, I got to show this. So Darlene, if you can pop that up there, but it's a four-minute video that just shows how the existence of the universe actually shows that there must be a God. Does God exist? Or is the material universe all that is, or ever was, or ever will be? One approach to answering this question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic, you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin? Or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. And that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, 
but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvin Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, proved that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused and unimaginably powerful. Much like God. The cosmological argument shows that, in fact, it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist. And again, like I said before, we all innately know this, and any child knows this. But we have to put it to science now because it has been challenged by complex scientific argument. But our culture is not seeking truth, they are suppressing truth. And what that shows is the seed of rebellion that exists in our human hearts. Like I said before, mankind does not deny God because we are ignorant. We deny God because we are rebellious. And that leads to something. Paul says the first reason why God is wrathful is, I mean, if, if mankind is just ignorant, then he can't be wrathful. But if mankind is racing away from God because we are actively suppressing the truth, and we can see why God would be wrathful because we are actually in rebellion against him. And when we suppress the truth, that leads to something. Paul says this, it leads to something else. For although they knew God, verse 21, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay, so step one, God reveals himself to mankind through nature. And he's waiting to see what is mankind going to do with this revelation. He hasn't revealed all of himself. He hasn't revealed Jesus through nature, but he's revealed himself to an extent through nature, and he's watching. What will happen? Will mankind take that revelation and pursue more of me in truth, or will mankind suppress that little bit of revelation and go the other way? And here's the thing. When you choose, if you choose to go towards God, if you take the little bit of revelation you have and move towards him, he will give you more revelation. But... If you move the other way, if you take the little bit of revelation you do have and you move the other way, you won't remain neutral. What will happen is you will actually put yourself on a path, you will begin to slide downhill, and you will accumulate more and more darkened, deceived, ignorant thinking. That's actually a scary thing, not just for unbelievers, but for us as believers. 
that when God gives you a little bit of revelation about something, you can either respond well to it and he will give you more, or you can turn away from it and you will become futile and darkened in your thinking. Eventually you'll get to a place where you aren't, you don't feel like you're suppressing the truth, but because you started by suppressing the truth, you've now come to a place of actual ignorance in your rebellion. And we actually see this. This is a principle that all of us need to be aware of. Jesus said it this way in Luke uh, chapter 8. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken from him. When God speaks to you, when he reveals something to you, if you suppress that truth, if you ignore that truth, if you disobey that truth, you don't only lose that truth, but you will lose other truth as well. But if, on the other hand, you respond to the bit of revelation you were given with a good heart, I want to know that God, I want to obey that, I want to do that, then he will give you more. To him who has, more will be given. But to him who has not, even what he has will be taken from him. But anyway, this is what we see happening in our society Our society has rejected the revelation that God has given us and instead is actively seeking to suppress that truth about God. And the result is that our society is becoming increasingly foolish and darkened. And I don't even have to give you many examples to show you that. But of course, one did come to my mind this week and we could think of hundreds. I was thinking back, this actually, this story goes back a number of years. I remember when I was a kid, there was actually a a baseball game. I used to be, when we lived in Southern Ontario, I was a huge Blue Jays fan. And there was a Blue Jays game uh, where uh, a player, Dave Winfield, actually took a ball and, and there was a seagull on the, on the field. There's always way too many seagulls there in Toronto. And, uh, and there was a seagull on the playing field and Dave Winfield, uh, some of you will remember him if you're a baseball fan, but took a ball and uh, I don't know if he was intending to kill the bird or scare the bird off, but his aim was real good and I thought it was cool at the time. <laughs> but took this, this ball, whips at the seagull, and, and kills it. And, you, and I'm thinking to myself, like, get out the garbage bag, let's keep the game going, okay? Well, the good people of Toronto were incensed, okay? Outrage that somebody would kill a seagull, okay? And uh, in fact, they were so outraged that he actually got arrested. He was taken into custody briefly. The ball was submitted as evidence, the murder weapon, okay? <laughs> you can look this up. If you don't believe me, you can look this all up on Google. It's a, it's a great story. And... Uh, I sometimes wonder, as I was even thinking about this story again this last week, I thought, you know, the, the good people of Toronto need to all be taken on a field trip to the, see the good people of Grunfall, and that might help them a little bit with the, <laughs> during... But anyway, huge uproar. It was all the front page news. People were outraged that someone would, would kill a seagull. And of course, I mean, I'm not standing up here telling us that we should all be going around killing uh, small animals whenever we can. Not at all. But my point is, so here you have a culture that can get utterly outraged, like absolutely work its way up into a tither over a dead seagull or a dead raccoon or deer or whatever. And at the very same time that's happening, thousands of women can go to the doctor's office every single year and the government will pay for them to kill their babies. You want to talk about futile thinking and foolish? Does it even make any sense? When you suppress the truth about God, you don't just lose that little bit of truth. You actually head into a, you you begin a descent, a headlong descent into madness. So last week I I read another story, just uh, off the top of my head, at a university of of, uh, somewhere in Toronto, one of the big ones. Again, sorry to those of you who are uh, from Toronto. It's it's the rest of the country too, but these are the only ones that came to my mind this week. But um, 
They had this brilliant idea. We're going to put guys and girls together in bathrooms. That way we're breaking down barriers. And this is a great idea. People will feel more included and all this sort of stuff. And, uh, and then people were shocked this last week. The leaders of the university were shocked this last week because uh, some perverts were taking pictures of women going to the bathroom with their cell phones. And I go, you couldn't see that coming? I'm serious. You couldn't see that coming? Like, this is, this is what I'm talking about. When you suppress the truth about God, you don't just lose that little bit of truth. You end up in what Paul says right here. You end up on this headlong slide into futility, darkness, and foolishness. Futility, darkness, and foolishness. So step one, mankind rejects the knowledge of God he can see. Step two, man becomes increasingly foolish and futile and darkened and ignorant. And we can look at so many examples. Just open up the newspaper and you will find many. And Paul says there's a third step though. It, doesn't, it starts with a, with a suppression of truth. It moves to increasing futility and foolishness and darkness. But that gets even worse. He says third step is as you become increasingly foolish, mankind also becomes lustful, perverted, depraved, and wicked. Verse 24, so therefore, because of the foolishness and the futile thinking, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. And is this not what our culture is today? Rather than, than worshipping the one who created sex, our culture worships sex. Rather than worship the creator who made our bodies, we worship bodies. Rather than worship the creator who made pleasure, we worship pleasure. And the result, the results are perversion, lust, impurity. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. I mean, that's just a, that's a bad thought right there that as you move into sin, headlong into sin. I'm not talking about the kind of sin where you're sinning out of weakness and you wish you could stop, but when you just begin to move headlong into sin, there comes a moment, point where in God's judgment, he hands you over to the sin. He just gives you up. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And just in case you think Paul's only picking on sexual sins, here he goes on. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And that's the end of Romans chapter 1, and that's just pretty much a great description of the world we're living in. Now, of course, what do we do with that? What do we do with that, right? What do we do with the end of that chapter? And I could have just ended the message right there. I could have said, well, we got to the end of chapter one and that just kind of ties things off neatly. We'll pick up with chapter two in a couple of weeks. But actually, I just felt the nudging the whole week. You can't end at the end of chapter one because the thing you have to remember about the book of Romans is it wasn't written with chapters. There are no chapters in the original. The chapters were added afterwards to help us find stuff. And if we end right here, what we're going to end with is a whole bunch of us going out into the world incensed and angry, looking down at the world and judging them and saying, you bad people. 
Do we need to absolutely understand the wrath and the judgment that's coming? Yes, so we can warn people. But if we end at the end of chapter 1, we end with the wrong heart. We end with ourselves looking down at the world and saying, wow, the world stinks. And it's actually not where Paul would have us end. I mean, first of all, I mean, in a couple chapters, he's getting to the good news, which is that this is the world that Jesus came to save. Amen? But secondly, he's actually got a twist for us in chapter 2. He's got a twist for us before he gets to the good news about Jesus wanting to save us. He first wants to get a twist because he knows. He knows that a whole bunch of religious people, Jewish religious people, and also complacent Christians are listening to this first part of his message, and he's preaching this message to get people to conviction and to get Christians to pray and to, and to have urgency when they share the gospel. But what's happening, but what, what he also knows is going to happen is you're going to have some religious Jews and you're going to have some complacent Christians sitting there going, Preach it, Paul. Preach it. And we're going, to want, we're going to want to listen to everything Paul's saying, and we're going to want to condemn the world and say, bad world, bad people. We want to sit on our seats of judgment here in the church and, and be mad at everybody else, and that's actually not the way Paul would want us to end this message. And so if we go to his, the very next verse, there's no break in the original. Here's Paul's very next thought, 2 verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And you go, whoa, where did that come from, Paul? I mean, we were kind of enjoying ourselves in the second half of that other one. I mean, it's kind of like that wasn't it. But now just it's back on us. So you listen to all this stuff, and he says, Yes, we should feel urgency. The world is rushing into judgment, and deservedly so. And God will be just when he judges that world because they are not rebelling out of ignorance. They are rebelling out of rebellion. But Paul doesn't want us to feel self-satisfied. He now turns the, he turns the finger onto us. And he says, Who are you, O man, to judge? For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, you might be sitting there and saying to yourself, well, we're not doing the same things. I'm not murdering people. I'm not aborting babies. I'm not, I'm not committing sexual immorality or whatever it is. So I'm not doing the same things that Paul just accused the world of. Well, let's actually go back to those last few verses. I'm going to point out to you a few things in there. Verse 29 of chapter 1. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. Covetousness. That's not murder. You know what covetousness is? It's never being grateful. Never being thankful, never having enough. You always got to have more, 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 more. Always got to have more. Never pleased, never content. Always got to have more. I wonder if any of us ever had that one. Might not have murdered anyone yet. Might have nailed one or two of us in there. Might even have nailed me. Some more would weigh my distant pass, obviously, right? Malice, they're full of envy. Oh, it's a bit like covetousness, but with an edge of bitterness to it. You've got covetousness, plus you've got bitterness because other people have the life you wish you had. Other people have the marriage that you wish you had. Other people have the family you wish you had. Other people have the job you wish you had. And you, the envy, you've got a bitterness. Murder, strife. How many Christians does this one hit? Strife, everywhere you go. Everywhere you go, it's arguments, it's misery, it's pulling people down, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Paul says it's not just murder, 
He says all of this comes out of this rebellious, self-centered human heart. Paul says we might want to sit on our high chairs, not like a high chair, like a kid. I don't know why I said that actually, but on our something chair. But we might want to sit on our judgment chair or something. And we might want to look down at the rest of the world and say, you guys are headed for judgment. But Paul says, who are you to judge, oh man, when you do the very same things? Who are you to judge when you do the very same things? See, it's not just the world that needs a Savior. We Christians still need the Savior every day too, don't we? Amen. That's the point Paul's about to make. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You think that carrying around the label Christian saves you on judgment day just because you call yourself a Christian, you prayed a prayer once, you think that saves you on judgment day? He keeps going, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness? See, this God is actually a kind God in forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's meant to lead you to repentance. Now, here's the, pro here's the problem that a lot of Christians have had. We have thought of repentance as something you do in your life once. I repent once. When I became a Christian, I asked Jesus in my heart, I repented once, and now I just go on living my life. Repentance is a lifestyle, and it's bigger than just saying sorry all the time. What repentance is, is day by day, walking in the realization that apart from the grace of Jesus, I'm as wicked and horrible as everybody else out there. Every day I walk with this humble realization that apart from the grace of Jesus in my life, I am no different than them. So I don't look down now at the world from my Christian high horse. That's a better one. That's what I should have used before. I don't look down on the rest of the world from my Christian high horse. Look at you horrible world. You're headed for wrath. I meet the world at their level. I reach out to them and I say, I'm the same as you, but for the grace of Jesus. And the church now goes and engages with the world. Yes, there's a place for righteous anger, and we should feel righteous anger at the injustices and the foolishness that we see in the world all around us. But we shouldn't just go through our lives always mad. We need to have this humility that we meet them. We are no different than you. We're no different than you apart from the grace of Jesus. I need Jesus' salvation. I need him to save me. It's holding on, as we talked about last week, holding on to that buoy day by day. I need Jesus every single day. I need Jesus' grace. I need his forgiveness. But we need a savior. That's why Paul's writing. He's writing this gospel. This, the, the, the letter to the Romans is written to Christians. It's Christians, too. We need the gospel. And when the gospel actually touches our hearts, when the gospel actually touches our hearts, and we, we will know when it is more fully touching our hearts, when we don't look down like this, but when we thankfully, gratefully receive his grace every day and then reach out to others, not from a position above, but a position as equals, we are in the same boat as you apart from Jesus. Oh, I pray that we could actually get that heart because when you get that heart, that's when the gospel, that's when the gospel is really hitting home. That's what a saved person feels and thinks like. So three things, and then we're going to sing a song here. Three things for you to take with you this week. Worldview to remember. Apart from Jesus, we human beings are not good. We are all at heart, selfish, wicked, and in rebellion against God. And as a result, we are all in grave danger of God's wrath and judgment. This is why we all need saving. Let us not let the culture deceive us with this idea that human beings are basically good. We actually need Jesus. Suppressing the truth, 
This isn't just about the world out there, but I thought a practical thing this week. Anytime you suppress God's still small voice in your life, it gets harder to hear him in the future. I think the reason some of us don't hear God's voice, this isn't the only reason, but I think it's one reason, is because we've actually despised, ignored, or suppressed stuff he's told us in the past. You want to hear God's voice? Show him that you're committed to obeying whatever he's shown you. Go back through your journal Ask him to show you, say, is there anything I've been despising in my life, anything I've been disobeying, a nudging, a prompting you've given me in my life? Because if you're faithful to the little, he'll give you more. And lastly, may we all ask God to give us a burden for the lost this week in appreciation for his grace in our lives. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, would you cause the good news, would you cause the gospel to actually touch our hearts more fully? Would you help me? Would you help my family? Would you help this church? that we would actually grasp the fact, really grasp it by your Holy Spirit, that we need a Savior too. May we engage with the world out of that urgency. May we engage with the world out of that compassion and that perspective. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.